Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Albert Einstein once said, The more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. We have a lot to learn today. Our guests include transgender bodybuilders, who'll tell us about gaining emotional fortitude as well as physical strength when they train. There's a virtual transgender bodybuilding conference and event tomorrow. You can learn many facts about our state history and tour the Georgia Capitol building by way of an app. Professor Tim Crimmins will be our guide. First, learning how to navigate a new theatrical season during COVID-19. Synchronicity Theater is offering a dual format to reach more audiences safely during the time of COVID-19. Their new season will feature in the theater and on the screen components. Rachel May is Synchronicity Theater's Artistic Director. She joins us now with filmmaker and media producer Felipe Barral. Welcome back to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Rachel, what has been going on with Synchronicity Theater since the pandemic hit last March? Well, you know, it's been an exciting time. (laughs) To say the Um, least. Absolutely. We had to cancel our show Wayfinding two weeks into the run. And actually, the day we realized we were going to have to cancel, we very quickly scrambled to try and film that evening and were given Felipe's name. And I called him sight unseen and said, I know you're wonderful. I have a favor to ask. You have no idea who I am, but can you come in and film tonight? And he very graciously joined us and allowed us to capture a really nice video of that show that we could make available. And so that's the start of how we got to know each other. But um, that was sort of our beginning into the pandemic. And what our staff and board has been doing during this time is working really hard to lean into mission, which is about uplifting the voices of women and girls and looking for all the ways we can do that both virtually in our classes and our um, after school and outreach programs 
And as we got into this season, we thought, what can we do to make it possible for us to be live with a very tiny audience with a lot of safety protocols when that's possible um, per certain guidelines that we're looking at? And also make it virtually available all the time, but in a really artistically robust way. And we reached back out to Felipe and said, let's create this new sort of hybrid visual space and decide together what that might look like. So Felipe, would you please explain how your media company works with Synchronicity to create these digital versions of performances? Yeah, and, and it's such a pleasure because, you know, I've been, you know, with my company, Igni Productions, you know, I've been helping a lot of artistic institutions, you know, to create content and, and, and expand what they can do in terms of content. Because, you know, nowadays, obviously, video, even before COVID, obviously, uh, in the last, you know, five years or so, video has come to the forefront in terms of that's the way we consume everything in this digital society. So if any company is not doing videos, they are not sort of talking to the audiences and engaging. So, you know, COVID has pushed the idea for a lot of companies that they need to have this strong digital presence with shows where, where they cannot have live uh, audiences. But the point is, you know, with, with people like Rachel, you know, and, and Synchronicity, it's like you, you embrace that. It's not just to, to say, oh, let's bring a couple of cameras and, you know, film from the back of the room a live performance and that's it. Uh, what we're trying to really do is also kind of bring the cinematic aesthetic and the cinematic production and sort of skills and mentality into if you combine theater with cinematography, what can you do together? So we come in the idea that let's be partners in this and let's try to conceive the, the digital version of the show, which may or may not be given, of course, you know, to the actual live performance if you see it live. But how can you enhance the experience for the viewer that is going to watch something like this? And I think those are the beautiful moments when it happens, when you start thinking through the lens and bringing that into the equation. And with Rachel, you know, we're embracing that sort of task. Yeah, and just to add, um, what's been exciting for our first project, 4x4, which is four one-woman shows, all by local Atlanta writers, one week after the other, each show asks for a different kind of thinking around what the digital experience will be. And so Felipe and I have been talking and we'll be also wrapping in the directors of each piece to really think about what's the camera movement, the camera movement, the camera angles, the energy, the aesthetic of each piece so that um, not only will we have kind of a consistency across the season, but allow each piece to speak for itself in terms of how it wants to come out of the live experience and onto the digital experience. So it's fun to really think about what each piece dictates in terms of how you film it. It is fascinating to hear you both speak about this because what once might have been considered competing art forms, live theater, on film, or video, you are working together to achieve what is the most effective way of delivering your art to the audience. So, Rachel, I bet when you went into theater, you were not thinking in terms of film direction. (laughs) 
That's right. And, you know, I have I have the good fortune of having done some um, particular documentary film work in my past. So I have a pretty good working knowledge of that, which I think helps because it is it is a different way of thinking. And of course, Felipe has a tremendous wealth of knowledge so that we're leaning on. But you know, one of the things we're really talking about is how do we appreciate all of those tools that film and video gives us? Um, we could get in really close for a moment, you know, those things that are different than live, but also still make sure that it feels like it is a live theater experience versus um, we're not actually film making a film of our play that we're doing. So it's a really interesting aesthetic discussion. Would you each talk a bit about that the in the theater and the on-screen components of your new season? Sure, I'll talk about the in the theater and let the believe <laughs> talk about the on the screen. So our in the theater just logistically uh, will only happen when we have eight days or seven days of less than eight percent testing positivity, and we have really stringent guidelines and under twenty people in the house, all of that. Um, so we're being really thoughtful and careful about that. But we are bringing actors uh, into the theater live with a set and props and costumes and all of that. For our first show, obviously, we are doing these one-woman pieces so that there's not multiple actors. And so we can make sure that that safety is clear for the artists. But we will have live artists in the room with design elements. And if there is able to be a small house, they would be in the room while we're filming as well. Um, if there's not, then it will just be the filming with the live performer and design elements. How close to the performance time or date would you be able to make the call as to whether it's safe to have the live audience. Yeah, we're doing a two week out window. Um, so we're looking back seven days and then prepping two weeks out. So that's that's what we're doing as we go throughout the season. Talk about having a lot of, what is the <laughs> juggler, what's the juggler's metaphor? Balls in the air, plates yeah. in the air. And a super awesome, flexible staff who's being just amazing. And Felipe, what is it like working closely with the theater company and conveying live theater versus scripted film? Well, you know, there's two things in there, you know. Uh, all of my, you know, professional career, you know, I've been trying to capture beauty and bring beauty to the world because I, I think we need it, especially now more than ever. And, you know, if you can choose a topic where that beauty can be there in front of your lens, you know, the artistic <laughs> institutions, you know, are, are sort of those great partners. So working with theater, it's, it's, it's fascinating because of that, you know, same idea. And, and in this case, you know, with Rachel and with Synchronicity and the great things they are doing. So it's different in a sense of, just doing a purely, you know, film because you are indeed basing it around a live theater performance. And in this case, you know, we want to capture a little bit of the, that sense of this is live with an audience or with us as an audience. So it is fascinating to approach it that way, to approach it more, uh, even though you're doing a more cinematic version of it, you still kind of apply the documentary filmmaking perspective in the sense of you know you're not gonna you know you're not gonna be filming this for two months 
right? You know you're not going to be just, you know, saying act, uh, action and cut, action and cut every single moment. You want the performer to just give you, you know, the, the performance and, and, and ideally capture it in one time beautifully with multiple cameras. And then you do the magic in the post-production side of things. But also, you know, you have the ability to actually at least work with sort of some takeaways. You can do some other extent, extended scenes, you know, that you want to emphasize and change the angles and everything. But once you kind of capture that moment, I always believe in this idea that even if I do a, a very crafted film, I don't like to do it 800 times and, and say action and cut multiple times because I want to capture a moment. And that moment has to be beautiful. And the performance is happening in front of you. The actor is giving you 100% and you are also giving 100% to capture that moment in the most beautiful way you can. And I think that's the beauty and the challenge of what we're trying to do. And that's the fascinating aspect. Hmm. You mentioned the four by four performances, Rachel. The headline reads, four weeks, four women, four stories. Who will be performing those shows? Yeah, so we have three performers who are the writers and performers, and then one where the writer is not performing. The first piece is the incomparable Terry Burrell, who is doing a piece called Backstage and Other Stories, um, where she's spilling the tea about her life in the theater, and she's singing, and she's sharing 40 years of experience. Um, and it's a really just delightful, wonderful piece. The second piece is by Sherry Jo Ward, and she's also performing. And Sherry is, it's a piece called Stiff. And Sherry is an actress who um, several years ago was diagnosed with stiff person syndrome, where her body is systematically stopping. And she decided to take it on the way that she always does with her um, humor and her spirit. And she wrote this piece about what it means to be going through that experience. And it's funnier than you would expect and incredibly poignant. And then we have a piece called Chorus of Bears by Lucy Smith. And she's also performing. And that is a really beautiful piece about the sort of exquisite pain and strength and beauty of becoming a mother and getting in touch with your inner chorus of bears uh, as you go through that process. And, uh, and then we finish out with a piece by Danielle Deadweiler called Rip. And she is not performing because her filming schedule doesn't allow, um, but we have Jasmine Thomas joining us as the actress in that piece. And it's a really powerful lyrical language piece about the dissolution of a marriage and the finding of self. Mm, you have some of Atlanta's finest talent lined up We here. do, we do. For those who would like to watch these performances digitally, what packages will be offered? Yeah, great question. So we have a subscription for the whole year where you can stream all of our performances for $100. And that will be eight performances this year because we have the four four by four shows and then our other four productions throughout the year, including our favorite A Year with Frog and Toad and a new Mirandy and Brother Wind in our family series and a Lee Noel uh, world premiere called Blue Angels Weekend. And then The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, which we had to move from this June to next year. So you could stream all of those for $100 um, with our subscription. And uh, individual shows are $10 to stream. And then we have live in the theater tickets as well. When I asked you what you've been doing since March, 
I think your answer could have been, I've been busy 24 hours a day planning all this. I mean, this is a tremendous amount of work you have been doing and have put together. What other virtual resources are offered on Synchronicity's website? So we are, um, all of our after-school classes have swapped to virtual. We did that pretty quickly in March. Um, so we have a variety of class opportunities for people who have their kids at home. And we also have, we'll be doing our programs for the show will be virtual so people can access them that way. And speaking of our website, Lois, we are overhauling our website and our whole new website will roll out really soon. It's going to be really, really great. We're very excited about that. Felipe, have you been involved with that? Well, we're starting with these capture performances. So, you know, obviously, you know, we, we, we are talking about other things and we explore more things to do together. Well, I wish you good luck. And it, it sounds like a rich, wonderful season ahead for synchronicity. Theater meets film in the best possible way with every consideration for safety. Rachel May, Felipe Beral, thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having us. It's so thank great you. to talk to you. Yes, a pleasure. Thank you. Felipe Barral, Emmy Award-winning producer and founder of Inyi Productions with Rachel May, the Artistic Director of Synchronicity Theater. Their new season will begin Monday, October 5th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Albert Einstein once said, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. Transgender people face those who do not know or understand anything about them every day of their lives. We're going to learn about an Atlanta-based organization the International Association of Trans Bodybuilders and Powerlifters. Bucky Motter is the executive director. He joins us now with Paolo Batista, competitive bodybuilder, IATBP judge, and presenter. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. Honored to be here. Bucky, would you give us a brief history of the organization? 
We started in 2014 as a part of TransFitCon, or at that time it was the F2M FitCon. So these were fitness conferences where the bodybuilding competitions were kind of showcased at these conferences. So eventually the bodybuilding contest broke away from the conferences and we began the IITB, which is uh, before we added the P for powerlifting. And so now here we are with the International Association of Trans Bodybuilders and Powerlifters, and we are now a .org, and we've had three bodybuilding competitions under the auspices of that name. There are so many people who are unaware of the life of a transgender person, much less what goes into an organization and events such as yours. What aspects of identity are involved with bodybuilding among transgender people? I, I, I would think that it could be very self-esteem enhancing to feel strength and control. And yet for many, the body is relatively new to the trans person. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head. The self-esteem of a transgender person is so important. The suicide rate among transgender people on the LBGTQ spectrum is disproportionately high. The Bodybuilders often start before their transition, and then they may have surgery, may not, and be involved in the competitions as a way of bringing their body into alignment with what they feel like they want to look like on the outside. So it is incredibly uh, enhancing to self-esteem. Paolo and Bucky, is part of the reason for an organization such as the IATBP because trans people were ridiculed or felt uncomfortable in other gyms? In an aspect of beginning, you know, a beginning a transition, there's always a lack of confidence. And yes, I would say a lot of guys and girls uh, within the community, even, you know, uh, non-binary folk, all parts of the spectrum are just uncomfortable as they're learning their new body to, to have that transition in the gym of being seen by other people in their new uh, gender identity. Um, it's a hard transition to understand. So there is a, definitely a level of uncomfortability. Um, so bringing an organization like this to allow that freedom of not having to feel that uncomfortability and more of an acceptance uh, allows that person to to stem out to you know to examine or see what their interests are uh, without being uh, having a level of judgment against them. Um, I know when I began my transition, I was definitely uncomfortable trying to walk and uh, go from one locker room now to another, um, especially when it was a gym that I've been going to uh, for years. As you know, Bucky said prior, I was a competitive bodybuilder before transition. So yeah, there's, uh, this gives a level of freedom, I, I would say, definitely. Paulo, how did you get started in the world of weightlifting? Uh, 
Ironically, actually stems back to uh, when I was 14. I was in a major car accident and I lost my ability to walk. Um, I fractured my pelvis in two spots. And uh, as a 14-year-old, that's a pretty big hit to somebody who's just now going from uh, middle, you know, middle school to high school and you want to get into all the sports and everything else that you're learning about. So uh, my physical therapy office, um, after recovering from uh, full recovery from my hip uh, fractures, uh, was actually held within a Gold's gym at the time. And uh, they actually used the machines uh, and explained to me, you know, obviously with any kind of physical therapy, which machines were used and what for and how it was going to help me be able to get the process of walking again and, you know, gaining that muscle strength again. And uh, it just grew from within there. Stayed with the gym for a long time, uh, all through high school. Uh, not at the same level of competitive bodybuilding, of course, but uh, the interest grew from there. And uh, over time, I played, obviously, collegiate sports after high school um, with scholarships. And uh, that still led to more fitness within uh, weightlifting, uh, more corporation and more education, obviously, at that level. And then uh, once I got out of college, it just became an interesting uh, area. Um, I actually suffered an injury uh, in collegiate sports, which led me to uh, an eating disorder and a depression. Over time, I, I took it to an extreme level, obviously with the gym, trying, you know, also suffering from body dysphoria at the time uh, with not knowing about that part of it. I'm trying to lose my curves and lose weight and stay, uh, you know, fit. And it was just a, a, a complete depression mess. But in the end, I did meet somebody who introduced me to competitive bodybuilding and it changed my life forever. Just that aspect of realizing that this was a sport that I could compete in again uh, gave me this lift and it changed my whole life from a negative to a positive. Again, it gave me that freedom to change my body from my uh, body dysmorphia and it gave me a leverage to take control of my life again and uh, depression got, you know, got that taken care of. Eating disorder disappeared and... Um, once I was free to finally start my transition and comfortable with that area, uh, obviously I was living in a small town at the time, so it was also hard to transition, but once that freedom all came around and I got to gain that, that confidence with my body, yeah, it's, every journey's different, I must say, but. Uh, but this, this was a powerful journey. I mean, starting with physical rehab, and the physical therapy as a 14-year-old that made you more aware of how you could regain strength and, and taking this through your, your emotional trauma. I mean, my God, to go through the depression, the body dysmorphia, the eating disorder, and emerge from it strong both psychologically and physically, I must congratulate you. I appreciate it. Like I said, I really think it started off just seeing how it changed my life at 14 to give me that, that strength to get through that, that kind of depression of not being able to walk and losing that ability to play sports. It just, I guess it kind of led me to be able to empower myself to get through the other depressions of post-collegiate injury. So it, it can save lives, definitely. Bucky, 
What are some of the logistics that go into planning a digital bodybuilding conference? I mean, it's hard to imagine a two-dimensional bodybuilding event. So how did you put together this virtual bodybuilding conference? Well, we are not having a bodybuilding competition or a powerlifting meet this year because we did feel like the logistics would be too difficult in that two dimension. So we decided we would have some workshops and panels and discussions regarding everything from gender non-conforming people competing to an actual bodybuilding posing workshop, which Paolo will be the judge for. And he may surprise us. Paolo may drop trow and come on in and pose uh, with our other subjects. So we're kind of excited about that. And so that should be a lot of fun. It'll be a more lighthearted, but also interesting to the audience in terms of what sort of jargon that you use around bodybuilding and what that means to peak right before a competition so that you look your best. So it will be informative to people who are interested in bodybuilding. So we hope to be back live again next year. What goes into being a judge? I guess this would be for both of you, Paolo, this year and Bucky. You've been the head judge for six years now. We just look for mass definition, symmetry. We look for all these aspects that make for a well-balanced body. It's, it's not necessarily the biggest person in the room that we look at. One of the weaknesses that a lot of bodybuilders can have is are their legs. And so oftentimes the very first thing I look at when, when they walk out on stage is a bodybuilder's legs. So uh, Paolo particularly has massive legs and he is just um, magnificent to look at when, he's, when you see his body. So it's pretty amazing. You know, and we also look for comportment and what the really fun part is, Lois, is the free posing where the bodybuilder gets to choose their own music and do their own posing routine. And the audience gets involved in it. They're clapping. Um, When they hit the poses, you know, the audience just goes wild. They lose their minds. It's it's a really a lot of fun. It sounds like those living tableaus. You know, have you ever seen those reenactments of paintings? It sounds like that. What has been the reception for your organization of trans bodybuilders among other bodybuilders and organizations outside of the trans community? Well, part of what we're trying to do, and thank you so much for this interview, is to let people be aware that there is an option for them to compete in a trans-friendly environment. We are, at this point, the little train that could, so to speak, and by doing Instagram posting and Facebook and trying to do some print media and media such as what you're doing right now, we're hoping that every bodybuilder who's transgender and every powerlifter who's transgender will know about us and will be able to compete with us. Paolo, your story, that journey you shared, it speaks beautifully to your role as that of a mentor to younger folks in the trans community. 
What advice would you give to trans individuals who want to get into bodybuilding? I like to say Rome wasn't built in a day. And when I say that, you're at the beginning of a transition for the most part when this becomes. And with that, you don't want to put too much pressure and you want to start from the bottom up. And I say start small and go large as, as you get the confidence. Um, reach out to within the community, uh, like with this, you know, competition. Uh, that's why I really value the conference, which allows, like I said, a judgment-free zone. I think it'll make a big difference that it's going to be online this year uh, to allow an audience that most likely couldn't come physically so they can actually get an introduction in another way where it's 2D. So like I said, they can jump right in and be like, wow, this really interests me. I mean, when I first came to bodybuilding itself as a sport, I had no clue about it until somebody gave me a knowledge about it. You know, I was in the gym for years and I didn't even know that I'll be honest, I didn't even know the sport existed. Yes, Arnold was around, but I, coming from a different gender at the time, it wasn't something that was pushed in my face to be like, Arnold's one of my idols. And so to learn about the sport in a sense that at that point in time that I was a gender, uh, that females could compete at the time, it was a really inspiring. So to have this kind of competition and conference and introduce that trans people can, gender fluid people can compete uh, I think gives a different light, like, wow, I didn't know I, this was something possible. Let me look into this and let me get started. And now here we have the knowledge online this year to give that freedom to somebody else. Okay, this is a way to start. This is what they're looking for. I have uh, knowledge from these people and now I have a way to reach out to an audience that's not gonna judge me for asking questions, especially for who I am and the situation I'm, they could be in. We have people from as far as Bangladesh, Sweden, the UK that have registered for the conference. So we're just crazy excited about that. Well, this has been fascinating, heartening, and I thank you for teaching us so much in such a short time about your powerful stories. Bucky Motter, Paolo Batista, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lois. I've been listening to you since I was 10 years old and I'm just so happy to be with you today. Thank you so yeah, no, much. We, we truly appreciate this. Uh, it just gives a voice for who knows, uh, you know, for others who've never heard of this before to find an interest in, you know, it's not just the trans community that we're trying to inspire. Um, amazingly, there is still a lot of cisgendered and other folk that we can inspire outside of our community. So just you allowing us means a lot. The International Association of Trans Bodybuilders and Powerlifters will present their virtual conference tomorrow. We heard from Bucky Motter, the executive director of the IATBP, with Paolo Battista, competitive bodybuilder, judge, and presenter. Timothy Crimmins is Georgia State University Professor Emeritus of History. He was chair of the Commission on the Preservation of the Georgia Capitol 
and co-author of Democracy Restored, A History of the Georgia State Capitol. Professor Crimmins joins us now via Zoom. Tim, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. It's really nice to be here. When we spoke last month, we talked about how removing statues and renaming streets go beyond symbolic gestures. That's a way of confronting the past with respect for the present and future. When you and Anne Farrisey wrote Democracy Restored, you detailed far more than the physical restoration of the capital. The double meaning of the title implies the more complex story of what took place in our state government's history. How is that story conveyed within your virtual tour of the Georgia State Capitol? Well, when we completed Democracy Restored, one of the things that I was interested in doing was to get the stories that we developed in the book accessible to people while they were in the Capitol. And the concept that we had was that history takes place at particular locations. People read about it in books, but it's something that played itself out in dramatic uh, ways in uh, public spaces and sometimes private spaces. And so what we wanted to do was to focus on stories that happened in the Capitol that tell this larger history of the uh, struggle to create democracy. And if you just take a look at the building uh, that opened in 1889, standing atop the building is the Statue of Freedom and uh, she's referred to as Miss Freedom. And yet uh, the history that took place in the building was one of uh, lack of complete freedom and uh, over time, a struggle to create uh, a more complete democracy. And of course, that's what you said, that's the title of the book. And so uh, looking for a way to do it, the challenge that I had uh, having overseen the restoration of the capital was to bring it in a way that uh, didn't intrude on uh, the restoration that had taken place there. And so, you know, typically you put in little video machines uh, in the building. That's what you would have done back in the early 2000s. And so what I did is I went and looked around and saw that uh, people who do museum uh, interpretation have what were then called wands, and you could walk around the art exhibit and play a into your ear a little recording that would tell you uh, bits and pieces about the painting that you were looking at and press one for basic information and two for more and three for more and so i saw that the company that did that had produced a little portable video that uh, would play videos and i wanted to have videos historic happenings in the capital so i put together a proposal to the national endowment for humanities and they uh, funded a grant that would give us a, a chance to develop a proposal to a company that would then produce the videos. And I was sitting in my office shortly after I'd gotten the grant and uh, one of my former students, Chris Escobar came in to see me and I was very excited to tell him about this because he was in the film and video area. And 
he listened to what I had proposed to do and put on this little video machine. And he reached into his pocket and pulled out the newly arrived iPhone. And he said, why don't you do it on this? And um, I thought about it and it suddenly dawned on me that uh, the grant that I had, instead of going ahead and laying out what I'd like to do in terms of a series of videos that would be given to a company and they would create them, that we could create these videos ourselves. And so that's what we did. We know Chris from the Atlanta Film Society and as owner of the Plaza Theater. It was fun to discover that he was a student of yours first when he was in your freshman learning community. And then as a graduate student, he teamed up with you on this project. We should add that this was 2012 when you mentioned the brand new iPhone and Chris had the idea for the app. Can you tell us about the process of adapting the book, collecting the data, and deciding what information to include in the app? I mean, it, it isn't an audio version of your print book. No, what we uh, wanted to do was to produce a series of uh, videos that could be played at particular places in the Capitol where historic events happened. And so, and then we wanted to tell uh, stories that were connected. So uh, we wanted to see the videos as leading one to another. And so we thought that what we would do is we would focus on the relatively recent events uh, going back into the 1950s. And since we were still working on a grant that was a uh, demonstration grant, we thought we could go back and see if we could get funding for the earlier stories. So we really focused on uh, the struggle over uh, civil rights. And uh, what we determined we would do then is we would interview people who had played a critical role in that. And so uh, we had the wonderful opportunity of uh, interviewing the late uh, Lonnie King, who was involved in the Atlanta student movement and in organizing uh, marches on the Capitol. We interviewed Gwen Middlebrooks, who uh, was a student who sat in in the Capitol as a part of the Atlanta student uh, movement sit-ins in the in 1960. We interviewed uh, Senator Leroy Johnson, who was the first African American elected to the to the legislature in modern times. And then we interviewed former governor and former president uh, Jimmy Carter. And so we were able to weave those interviews into a series of stories that tell about the struggle for human rights and civil rights as it plays on the Capitol grounds. So Tim, the app. It's serving several purposes now. It can be a tour guide when one is inside of the Capitol building touring the museum. And can it also be a virtual tour of the building for people who are elsewhere or even in other parts of the globe? Uh, yeah, so uh, the way the app is set up, when you pull it up, you can... Uh, choose to uh, 
follow the stories by place. And there's a map of the Capitol building by uh, the each of the floors and the grounds. And we have videos that are keyed to, uh, say, the front steps of the Capitol where Jimmy Carter uh, gave his inaugural address uh, when he said that the time uh, for racial discrimination is over. And that's a key part of our story. And you can go to the uh, third floor to the Senate, and that's where Senator Leroy Johnson uh, entered as the first African-American elected to the legislature in modern times. And he tells his story of his arrival there and his efforts to desegregate the Capitol. And there are just some really wonderful uh, accounts that he gives of uh, what that process was. And so that's how it's set up. You can go around the Capitol to those locations and listen to those videos and hear that history. And then the history that you hear is a combination of short historic clips. For example, we have Jimmy Carter's inaugural address where he says that the time for racial discrimination is over. And then we switch to the interview that we did for the app where uh, President Carter follows through with what he said that followed that. So what we have then is in the videos, it's a montage of historic photograph, historic news reports, uh, historic recordings, and then uh, the current interviews. Hmm. What was it like speaking with President Carter? Was he readily available to you for this? That was really uh, a good deal of fun, uh, trying to get President Carter to uh, do the interview because he has many, many uh, demands on his uh, time. And so at that time, I was on the board of the Friends of the George Archives, and there was a person on the board who was able to get me in touch with his scheduler. And so what I did is I sent the section of the uh, Democracy Restored where Ann and I described the uh, inaugural address of the President Carter when he was inaugurated as governor, and he agreed to do the interview. Um, and so it was set up at the Carter Center. And then I talked to the scheduler and I said, the whole effort here is to do it in the Capitol where history took place. And she conveyed that to the uh, president and he said yes, that he would do it. So getting him to come to the Capitol and talk about uh, in the Senate chambers when he arrived there as a freshman senator, he arrived the same year that Leroy Johnson arrived. And um, he then said in his inaugural address something that is incredibly relevant today. and after he said that the time for racial discrimination is over, he said, but there are still hundreds of decisions yet to be made. And so we met at the portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. And President Carter repeated that hundreds of decisions still had to be made and talked about how it is that only white people of note were in the Capitol. And he appointed a commission to select three African-Americans from uh, the state who would then have their portraits uh, in the Capitol. And we met at the Martin Luther King portrait where he told that story. And we have footage there of Coretta Scott King talking after the uh, dedication of that uh, portrait. But if you think of how relevant that is today, 
we're still making decisions. The whole issue of the uh, John Brown Gordon statue is one of those hundreds of decisions that still have to be made, and this is over half a century since then. Mm. President Carter's remarks about only white people being in portraits on the walls of the Capitol. He said that when he was elected governor in 1971. It must have been thrilling when you spoke with him eight years ago to take him to those very portraits that now hang, which you described. And the statue you just mentioned, we touched upon last time. For those who may not have heard that interview, would you refresh us on that? So in the app, we focus on the modern civil rights struggle, but uh, the evolution at the Capitol uh, began with exclusion. And so when the Capitol opened in 1889, one of the first sessions of the, the legislature that took place there introduced uh, segregation of streetcar ordinances uh, for the state. And so it was a point at which uh, state governments were following uh, Plessy, um, were introducing uh, ordinances that required the separation of the races. And then after the death of John Brown Gordon, who was the governor who welcomed the legislature to the Capitol in 1889, after his death, a statue was erected in his memory, and the statue was the first one that was placed on the grounds. And John Brown Gordon had been a Confederate uh, general. He had been uh, the titular head of the terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan, in the aftermath of the Civil War that uh, used violence to suppress uh, voting rights of African-Americans. And in the post-Reconstruction era, he had gone on to a political career in the state as a senator and a governor. And so a statue was erected. And in that statue, uh, on his horse that he used as a Confederate general and dressed in the Confederate uniform, and then his face is depicted that of the way he looked when he was a governor and senator in older age. And so when that was dedicated, there was a push to create a series of statues in all four corners honoring Confederate soldiers and uh, generals uh, from Georgia. And so that was all part of this effort at consolidating the white supremacy that was the driving force behind the segregation ordinances. And so what we're struggling with today is what to do with a, a statue like that. One of the things that I attempted to do in the apps was to focus on the context uh, and what Ann and I developed in Democracy Restored is an account of how that happened so that people would see that it wasn't just a, a statue there, because I think most people who see it, you know, don't pay much attention to it, at least they didn't at the time, but people now are very much aware of uh, the Confederate statues, and uh, there's a, um, a huge debate on what to do with them. I would think that there would be renewed interest in Georgia's history and in what you and Anne Pharisee wrote about on the Capitol, particularly in light of the aftermath of protests in the wake of recent murders, and 
with the death of Congressman John Lewis. Tim, what kind of marketing or publicity is there for your tour? Does the Capitol Museum promote this? How would one learn about it if one didn't live here or know you? Well, I think that the Capital app, uh, we tried to market it uh, when we first produced it. And since it was done with the support of Georgia State University, the Georgia State uh, University magazine uh, had a wonderful feature on it. And I was able to get uh, one of the uh, Capital reporters to do an account uh, back when apps were first coming out, which was, you know, that first generation, uh, we publicized it then. And then the Capitol Museum uh, lets people who are coming to the Capitol to visit it uh, to know about the app as well. Georgia State University Professor Emeritus of History, Timothy Crimmins. You can find his app for touring the Georgia Capitol through the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. with R-E-S-P-E-C-T. The song is now a picture book. Carla Redding Andrews, the daughter of Otis Redding, will tell us about the wonderful new children's book set to her dad's song, made even more famous by Aretha Franklin. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hachu Records. Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden are City Lights producers. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Won't you follow me on Twitter and help me reach that next round number milestone at L-O-I-S? R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.